Hey everyone, how you doing? So, uh, I'm Clara and I'm back with another one of my science chats. And today I'm going to be talking to uh, a friend of mine, uh, Dr. Uh, Jessica Boland. So, Jessica is a material scientist and um, even though we're both material scientists, she does quite different stuff to me. Um, she's also a, a active campaigner for equity in STEM and diversity in STEM. Uh, she's a lecturer and a researcher in, in Manchester University, so my hometown. Um, and yeah, just an all-round absolutely lovely person. And so uh, let's meet uh, Jessica and find out about her work, shall we? So, hi, Jessica. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining joining me. And um, it's absolute pleasure, as always. Uh, so who are you? What do you do? What is your work and your research? Okay, so I'm Jessie. Um, Jess, Jessica, whatever you want. Jessica's a little bit like I'm in trouble, so usually referred to by Jessie. Um, yeah, I'm a lecturer at Manchester. I'm in the Department of Electrical Electronic Engineering, but also live in the Photon Science Institute. Uh, that's quite cool because it's a research institute that is interdisciplinary. So lots of different groups from physics, material science, electrical engineering, chemical engineering, etc. Um, so my background is actually in physics. So I did an undergrad um, at Exeter. Still love going to Exeter. It's a beautiful campus um, and also did a master's project there. That was in reflective um, plasmons, designer surface plasmons, and also reflective liquid crystal displays at a year in industry in Hewlett-Packard in Bristol. So that was fun because also got to experience Bristol. Um, and then went to do a PhD in physics again, but now we're at Oxford. So yet again, a different place. I'm exploring all of the UK. That's what I'm trying to do <laughs> so far. Um, and my research was mainly focused on terahertz spectroscopy of nanomaterials when I was there at Oxford. And then I did spend a bit of a year abroad. I went to Germany, learning more about terahertz and now that's why I absolutely love terahertz. And before coming back to the UK and settling in Manchester and transitioning more to the engineering side, so now trying to use my physics knowledge, the terahertz characterization I've learned, but to something more applied. So device applications now. Um, so that's kind of my research journey. Um, other interesting facts about me, I didn't always want to do physics or engineering. So I did want to be a professional ballerina and there is embarrassing photos of me in tutu on tutus and stuff like that somewhere on Twitter. Um, please don't try and search for them though. Um, but um, yeah, so wanted to do that as a career. Um, anyone that's ever met me knows that I'm vertically challenged and only five foot. So that was the end of my ballerina dreams. Interestingly, if you look at the corps de ballet, all of the group of beautiful ballerinas, they're very, very tall, a lot taller than five foot. So um, yeah, I had a backup plan which originally wasn't science. It was things such as classics, Latin, languages. So I still love Latin poetry now. It's kind of my geeky pleasure on the side. Um, yeah, but then eventually decided I liked problem solving, which is 
what I guess took me into physics and engineering. Um, I also happen to be hard of hearing or deaf with a little D. -D. Um, so I rely mainly on lip reading for communication. I'm starting to learn sign language now, which is a massive step for me and I'm really enjoying it. It's making um, life a bit easier, especially with face masks right now. Um, but uh, that's another side of me. So you might see me promoting the use of British Sign Language quite a lot in science, in STEM, and promoting accessibility. That's awesome. We can definitely talk a lot more about that. And we will. <laughs> it's interesting. I, I love that. Um, I love your journey. It's it's interesting that so my first degree was electronic and electrical engineering. And of course, you're now in a building in Manchester. I went from doing that in Manchester, but at Manchester Met to being in Oxford in a materials, more physics group, <laughs> go figure, <laughs> to kind of we passed. We're the reverse, right? Of each other. There we go. <laughs> yeah, it's it's I'm I'm a little bit, you know, sad to hear that you they make you live in the uh, photons group. I mean, did they not let you have a house outside of the department? <laughs> just No, I just like stay there and sleep there all the time. So it's quite a nice comfy office, but <laughs> no, I, mean, I, I do I do live away from the department, you'll be glad to know. Um actually live in North Wales right now, so it's a bit of a commute, I know. But on the border between um, Wales, Saltney, and Chester, so I get the best of both worlds, and also the best of both lockdowns right now. So, <laughs> whether that's a positive or not, but yeah. All right, I didn't realise that. I mean, Chester to Manchester, you're talking what an hour if you're going in? Yeah, it's about an hour commute. Um, but yeah, it's because my partner works in North Wales, so he's an optics design engineer there as well. So. The joys of a dual career, um, somewhere nice in the middle. But. Yeah, no, I, I, I had no idea. I didn't realise that's like I say it's quite a commute. I know because one of my cousins was in Chester and I was in Manchester, and you're yeah. further along. <laughs> uh, but like you say, at least you've got the um, you're not too far from the North Wales Snowdonia region. I guess you're oh, a lot closer than. So, oh, I definitely. Wales. I can't wait to explore Snowdonia again. I haven't climbed it yet, so that's that's on the to-do list. So there's a yeah, I love especially Triffin. I love Triffin. It's such an amazing peak. It's just oh. it's got the the two big rocks because Triffin's very triangular and it's got the two rocks on the top, Adam and yeah. Eve, and I have jumped across them. <laughs> it's funny because if if it was at ground level, it's just like. It's not that big a jump, but when you're on top of a fairly triangular peak, it's like. Yeah, I'm not sure I'm that brave. <laughs> yeah, there's pictures of me doing it. Uh, it it's great. All, all everybody else in the group was like, no, a whole bunch of lads. No, no, no. <laughs> what had happened, I climbed up on top of it. And it was a bit of a windy day as well. I climbed up on top, but there were so many people up there that once you climbed up, you had to do it, you, you know. <laughs> you can't back out <laughs> and it's funny because like i say you're jumping like a foot and it's so pathetic but because of where it is it is it's a whole different ball game <laughs> sorry completely uh, i love snowdonia i absolutely adore snowdonia you'll have to show me you'll have to come and then you can yeah, show me the ropes and stuff i think gosh i can't even remember when the last time it must be seven or eight years so 
yeah. we'll have to do it then definitely yeah i might need a current encouragement to get to the top so <laughs> we can do, do it together yeah <laughs> oh, i'd love that i would love that but coming back to science <laughs> <laughs> So you're, uh, so you, you're, you're talking about, um, oh, you were talking about um, the sort of techniques that you're using. So what is it, what is it you're actually looking at? You say you're looking at thin film materials, or you're looking at different materials. How are you looking at them? What is it you're trying to see? Yeah. What sort of materials are you working with? I mean, yeah, what are you question. doing? What are your stuff? <laughs> quite a lot of things, actually. So um, the materials can be quite varied. So I'm mainly looking at anything that we call low dimensional, so nanomaterials. So 2D materials, which could be graphene type materials, monolayers of materials such as transmission metal dicalcagenides. We're just going to call them TMDCs from now on. <laughs> but those types of monolayer materials is one example. Um, but also conventional materials that you might have, such as silicon in technologies, but trying to shrink them down to be nanomaterials. So often in something called a nanowire, which is quasi one dimensional because the diameter can be on the order of maybe a hundred nanometers, but they'll have lengths of 10 microns. And the reason we're going to this nanoscale is because the materials we have already like silicon are reaching fundamental limits so we kind of reached a speed limit, if you like, for how de fast devices can go. And also a limit on energy efficiency. So we need to start kind of looking at new ways to do that. And that's where quantum comes in. So when you go down to the nanoscale, there's lots of advantageous effects that you can use. So um, quantum effects that will make it more energy efficient. And these kinds of nanowires have already been shown that when you go smaller, you actually still have the same optoelectronic properties as those big bulk materials. Um, so pretty cool. Um, one of the important things for a device is the carrier mobility. So how fast your charge carriers are going. And that really will govern, govern a device speed. So you want to have as high a carrier mobility as possible in a device. And these nanowires have the same mobility as that bulk material. So I'm quite interested in using them and exploiting them in a device. And cool. they're cool because you can also fabricate them in very different ways. Yeah. So you can choose to dope them on nanoscale length scales as well. So change it from a charge carrier being an electron to a hole with different mobilities. And this is the basis of most solar cell devices actually. You need to have a PN junction so a P-type with holes and an N-type with electrons. So you need that kind of flexibility and these nanomaterials can offer that. So those are some examples. There's even a new material, which is even cooler, uh, which is called a topological insulator. Now, these are really weird. Yeah, that was the Brummie accent coming out there for weird. Um, <laughs> but, um, the bulk of it is insulating, but their surface, is almost perfectly conducting. So it's the same material, just one material, one kind of element, such as bismuth selenide or something. And, you know, the middle of it behaves different to the surface, which is very bizarre. 
Huh. Yeah, weird, right? Yeah. <laughs> but when you think of the surface as well, um, even those charge carriers at the surface behave differently. So they go close to the speed of light. So we've got rid of that speed limit I was talking about before. They also travel just in one direction. And if you put impurities in the way, they can't be backscattered. So you kind of put an artificial defect, it will just carry on going. So it's a bit like us being on an ice rink. You're going round in circles, but with less heat and less resistance. So it could be a solution to energy efficient, energy efficiency. Wow. So quite a lot of materials. Um, I guess you should probably say how we look at them now, right? <laughs> that, it, that might be my next question. Yeah. What is it? You're, <laughs> yeah. How are you measuring and what is it you're measuring? And yeah. Yeah. So these materials, you can't usually look at them with a conventional optical microscope because they're nanoscale, they're too small. Um, often, if we want to measure that property, mobility, um, electronic properties, often you fabricate electrical contacts onto them. But again, if they're quite small, that's quite challenging to do. And also sometimes you can destroy them mm. by doing that and alter their properties. So how we're looking at these materials is to use terahertz radiation. So you may have heard about terahertz possibly in the news because it's starting to be used in airport scanners now, um, but it's in between microwave and infrared. And its energy range encompasses the energies of those electrons that move, holes that move in our material, phonon modes, so how the material is vibrating, for example, also plasmons and magnons. So lots of properties happen to live in this terahertz range, huh. which is awesome because then you can use it as a non-contact probe. That's nice. So, yeah, nice. If I shine terahertz radiation at these nanomaterials, usually they will either absorb the terahertz radiation, so you'll kind of see a difference in signal. And it's that difference in signal that I'm measuring. And I can relate that back to the optoelectronic properties. So I can do some fun fitting and data analysis, and I can tell you the conductivity of your material it's photoconductivity, what that mobility is of any charge carriers, and also the lifetimes of those charge carriers, so how long they stay around for as well. So it's quite a powerful technique. Yeah. And don't damage your sample, and, you know, it's a lot easier than fabricating contacts onto something that's really, really small. Yeah, I mean, I was making some solar materials and some semiconductors and we had to cut them to the exact right size and they're only a few hundred nanometers and then you've got to put electrical stuff on them and dag and yeah. uh, do the whole measurement and then back uh, yeah so the fact that you can sort of measure them that's really interesting and so are they quite i mean obviously they're small wires they're very small dimensions do you have lots of them i don't uh, how does that work yeah that's a good question because there's two types of technique so normal far field terahertz spectroscopy you'll look at several nanowires so we transfer nanowires onto a substrate 
um, and they can be aligned in the same direction, they can be mismatched, they can lie on top of each other. So you can put several nanowires onto one substrate. And when you're looking at them just in the far field, so shining just a normal beam of terahertz radiation, you'll be effectively measuring an average conductivity. So the conductivity response of an ensemble of nanowires, and that can be tens of thousands of nanowires all in one go. So that's one way of doing it. Often there's problems with that though, because a lot of the devices are just one nanowire. So um, an example is a laser. You can make a laser out of a nanowire. Super cool. Um, and there's actually other people at Manchester working on that. But that's just one single nanowire. So then you start asking the question of which is the best nanowire that I have measured? Which one do I actually want to pick? Um, often sometimes for terahertz photo detectors, that's just one nanowire as well. So you want to look at one nanowire independently from that bulk ensemble as well. And also if you have any variations in your nanowire. So we were talking about yeah. different doping earlier, yeah. PN junctions. If you doped one end of your nanowire so that the charge carriers are mainly holes, and then the other end was doped with n-type doping so that you've got lots of electrons instead, you want to be able to see where that change in doping concentration is. So actually you also wanna measure these properties on the order of like 30 nanometers or tens of nanometers. So even smaller resolution, if you like, or better resolution than one nanowire. And this is quite a new technique. And this is terahertz microscopy now. Um, yeah, and that's what we're trying to develop in my group now at Manchester so I mean really that's cool. yeah that's a, that's amazing <laughs> it, it's 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 always interesting um and it, it just amazes me I I tend to look at materials that they might be a few nanometers um in thickness but they'll be five mil by five mil wide or something like that I mean you're literally and that's tricky enough and you're you're actually sort of taking down those, like you say, quasi one directional. It's like just what the heck? That's tiny. Yeah. Don't it drop is it on the floor. Exciting. Yeah. The spatial resolution of these techniques is really starting to push towards the nanometer now. Um, and that's because wow. we can also fabricate at that scale. Yeah. So we can actually dope on those length scales. So you need the characterization to kind of match up and also be able to look at those types of length scales. Fun. that's amazing it's amazing and are you uh manufacturing these materials or are you getting them in to measure them oh i'm definitely not manufacturing them that's where lovely <laughs> collaborators come in yeah <laughs> so a lot of these materials come from different groups actually in the uk and this is yeah. one of the beauties of research how interdisciplinary it is i am by no means an expert in materials growth or fabrication um, so a lot of these materials are from renowned experts in their field. So one group is actually in EPFL in Switzerland. Um, Anna Fonkteberta's group who make 3.5 nanowires, for example. There's also a group at ANU, Australia National University, uh, Professor Chenapati Jagadish, who's another expert in 3.5 nanowires. So I get 
lovely samples from him as well. Um, more closer to home, um, a lot of the topological insulator fin films are from a group in Leeds, so Edmund mm -hmm. Linfield's group, and Torsten Hesjedal in Oxford. So you might know him, actually. He's a lovely guy. I'm uh, actually was speaking to him last week. Uh, <laughs> there you go. He gives me all my beautiful topological insulator nanowires. So. Excellent. I haven't spoken to him for a long time, but uh, yeah, we might be moving some equipment into his lab because COVID restrictions mean that they want to use it and we can't have more people in the lab. So it might be going oh, to his lab. Oh, no. <laughs> we'll figure. Oh, it's, it's kind of good for me. We're limited on space, but... <laughs> yeah. Oh, that would be good. Yeah, you have to say hi to him for me. Yeah. Okay. No, that's amazing. That's great. Yeah. Loads. It's good because you get to visit different universities when you're talking to the collaborators and also you get to learn quite a lot because I've, I've recently started working with Professor Hu Yin Liu from UCL also an expert in nanowire growth so it's quite nice to kind of meet all these new people and they're doing fantastic work and experts in their own field um, and then I don't have to worry about that side of it either which is really nice so yeah. And I think that's one thing that's really important is something that we don't you know it's the collaboration and the difference in expertise like so i can make thin films i don't know how to you know i don't make nano wires but i make nanoscale films um you know they're sort of different and you've got the thing and then when it comes to the uh, the measuring and the sort of measurements that you're talking about i have no idea about that i mean i have no idea but that's where collaborations do come in and that's why yeah collaborations are really important I think definitely you can't be an expert in everything so and I don't advise you ever should try <laughs> so um, I think it's definitely collaboration is the way to go so, yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean I've said this uh, with other people in the past but I love the you know I love the groups where we have very different expertise within the group I mean mm -hmm. Susie Speller whose group you know, it's, it's it's her group that I run and she's great on the physics side of it. And I'd like to think I'm great on the thin film side of it. And we both know about the other, but in different ways and just works really well together because we just look at things differently. Yeah. Um, you do need that range of ideas and opinions and just different outlooks. Yeah. Because everyone's got different experiences, definitely, in their lives as well that will change how you look at things and i think that's how good science is done definitely yeah and especially when you're sort of talking about material science it's such a collaborative thing and that's you know my last group in switzerland we're all chemists i don't know about the chemistry but i could get the equipment working and play with the uh the plasma you know <laughs> <laughs> i've never done chemistry ever i didn't do an a level in chemistry so i'm always like so happy when there's a chemist like collaborating because i'm like yes someone that knows chemistry <laughs> so, <laughs> <ask> questions of. <laughs> it's just when they're dropping something they'll make a statement about some principle that they learned about in the first year and it's like that's great but i never did that let's <laughs> <laughs> say like, with physics yeah i think we were talking about sort of quantum materials and, and you mentioned quantum materials like i'm trying to as someone that didn't do physics trying to get my head around around that <laughs> is i got told a famous quote once that if you think you've understood quantum mechanics you haven't actually studied it 
because it's just so confusing full stop and no one understands it so I think that was told me in like first year quantum mechanics course probably by Professor Roy Sandal at Exeter there's probably something he would say yeah definitely it was encouraging to be like ah we're never supposed to understand quantum brilliant so (laughs) (laughs) we can further the understanding but we can't understand it and that actually I kind of that's what I love about science yeah um i've been working with people recently i think that they were a little bit you know they sort of once they finally got the equipment working sort of expected that the first thin film they make is going to be perfect and i'm like if the first thin film you make is perfect i'm out of a job like (laughs) i love it you're like please don't kick me out of a job (laughs) yeah exactly if we could just make them why do we need scientists so um, yeah so you know yeah like you say keep me in a job yeah <laughs> exactly yeah but I think it, I think science is about failing and learning from that experience so exactly. that's experimentation you're supposed to fail and then you know it's not really failing it's just a null answer and then you move on from it so I was having and I think yeah I was having a good um discussion with uh uh, Clara Nellis about this actually because mm. I was saying that the technology that I used during my PhD and postdocs was brand new and so most of the time was just trying to get it to work so so many null answers and yet we don't publish any of that yeah and and Clara was saying in particle physics they do publish all the null answers because it helps everybody else move forward and yeah. it's like yeah we should be doing that like because that's important. I did all that work and then I speak to someone and it's like, oh yeah, we did that too. You're like, we needed to know it didn't work. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, yeah. I, mean, I, I do know... think normal results are so important for that. Definitely. To know that you're going down the wrong alley and don't bother, it will be a waste of time. But also yeah. like, yeah. sometimes it's worth going along the same route as somebody else as well, just to have that kind of reassurance that you're, you know you've both seen the same thing sometimes um so that's experiments i love it yeah i think i think it always depends like especially if you're like a research project like a master's or a phd and Mm. you're working with other people that have got some expertise in the field so they can you can learn off their knowledge and and you know they'll be able to pass over it's always difficult if you're the only person in the group doing it and starting from scratch um but yeah no i think I agree. I mean, failure helps us understand things so well, mm-hmm. or at least. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it helps us with our understanding. I mean, we 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 do sort of change how we do things once yeah. we've got it wrong a few times. You melt a few Definitely. bits of equipment and fry a few electrical devices, and hopefully, you don't do that again. You know, I'm, I'm sure we've all done it. I've definitely fried some equipment. I'm not going to admit it on here though just in case my old phd supervisor's listening in but, but, but we've definitely all fried equipment so. i well i so i keep on saying to everyone sort of in my lab i'm like look you're gonna break equipment and it might be expensive and i might not be happy about it but it's gonna happen if you don't tell me and you just put it back in the cupboard or try and cover it up then we're gonna That's lose weird. months and months trying to figure out what's going on so it's gonna happen yeah, just got to be definitely. honest about it. 
I've definitely said that to my group now that you're kind of like this happens stuff gets broken so you're right it's much worse not to not to say and then you're kind of like ah more time for everybody to fix it so exactly yeah. you can just start looking into it is oh yeah it's just so important it's just good lab practice mm-hmm. everyone's going to break stuff it's just the way that's that's a PhD. <laughs> <laughs> definitely so used to work for a company that made equipment and the way that they test things was turn it on and see what blew up. Um, (laughs) But of course, in industry, they've got the money to just replace the parts, right? Yeah. yeah. In a university, if anything goes pop, you're like, no. Uh, We definitely thought to be cautious, but that, you know, things still break, but just be cautious. But yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> like just see if it blows up or not <laughs> yeah i'm not yeah i'm not saying that's the way to do it but there you go <laughs> <laughs> it's a different it's different when you've got more money i think yeah um yeah we certainly don't want to be doing that but yeah so i mean obviously you're you're working so you're saying that you're um you're measuring these things you're saying in the terahertz range i mean what is it that you're using is this 5g are we going to be controlling people's <laughs> brains or... well it could become 6g definitely wow. so 5g is kind of um on the top end of the microwave band so actually the next devices 6g are starting to push in the terahertz range uh, so the terahertz range goes from 100 gigahertz out to 10 terahertz um so it's quite long wavelength. And obviously you've heard gigahertz quite a lot for 5G. And I think it's about 50 gigahertz at the moment, 30 okay. gigahertz, 50 gigahertz. So we're really not that far from starting to push in the terahertz range. Um, so it's quite exciting, but it's also a challenge for that because microwave and radio is very much electronics. You can deal with that as a lovely electronic engineer in the usual way circuits pcb boards you're quite happy anything kind of above the terahertz range you know visible uv gamma then you're starting to look at photonic techniques some more light-based techniques but terahertz is kind of just in between both electronics and photonics and Recently, like in the past decade, it's been quite challenging to get devices to work in that terahertz range. But now we're starting to have these terahertz sources that are starting to be able to use in devices, which is quite exciting. So I, I would say a decade ago, the most common way of having terahertz radiation was to use a huge amplifier laser that's taller than me, um, use that laser pulse to excite a crystal, a non-linear crystal, and then you get terahertz radiation. And that's still very much actually how it's done now. So I still have that amplifier laser that's bigger than me in the lab right now. And we're generating terahertz in that way. But obviously if you want to have terahertz in a phone or any communication, that's not realistic. So trying to now do it electronically so that you can use circuits to generate that terahertz radiation. So that is a whole research field in itself. Um, yeah. yeah, which is quite fun. And actually some of my research will try and answer those kind of questions 
So trying to find those materials that you could use as a nice electronic device that will give you terahertz radiation out. Also detect it and be able to switch it on and off. Yeah. So, and then hopefully we'll have ultra fast 6G wireless communication. But um, yeah, there are some limitations, I should say. Um, one of the things that you may not hear so much about with a 6G or terahertz is terahertz actually has quite strong absorption lines from water vapor. Mm, okay. Actually, if you wanted to use it for long range, it's a bit challenging because it would be absorbed by the water vapor in the air. So what you're most likely to see it used as is kind of instead of Bluetooth, so short range, but very quick wireless communication. So your long range is still done by 5G, but once it gets to your house, you might have the 6G terahertz to get it to your phone, for example. So kind of like we transport electricity right now. Um, you know, we ramp the voltage up and down depending on whether it's in the house or outside the house, right? Yeah, exactly like that. So I think, yeah, definitely there'll be a lot of chat about that, I think, in the news coming forwards because that's one of the key areas for terahertz research at the moment. That's interesting. Uh, the, f the fact that you've got these massive lasers in your lab as well so just... i can send you a picture i'll send one with me stuck next to it yeah, so... yeah. <laughs> to be fair we, we we've got a laser in the lab and it's yeah it's probably it's probably about as tall as well it's as wide as i am tall pretty much and uh, <laughs> and and yeah when people are like so where's your laser i'm like no that is the laser <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I sometimes lie down by mine just to see how, how big it is. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, from the top, and it's quite amusing. Yeah, yeah. So you, I mean, you're using quite a lot of lasers in the lab. Then is that what you're doing? You're basically sort of firing them at different samples and then trying to measure and see what's been absorbed or what's been. Yeah, definitely absorbed. that. Yeah, so there's quite a lot of lasers because we look at photo exciting them. So with different wavelengths of light. So it really depends oh, yeah. on the material. So sometimes we might photo excite them using infrared or visible or UV light. And it depends on what the bang up of the material is. Because we're always trying to photo excite and generate three charge carriers. And then those free charge carriers will absorb that terahertz radiation. So that's how we can then see the photoconductivity. So how are those charge carriers behaving? And we're detecting that using that terahertz signal. So there's quite a lot of lasers because you have one to excite terahertz in the first place and then one to photo excite your sample. And if you want to do different wavelengths, it's a different laser usually for each wavelength. So I love playing with lasers, just so many. <laughs> so if, I'm always like, if anyone's like, oh, we're not using this laser, I'm always like interested because, um, yeah, they're really useful. As the current laser safety officer for the department, it sounds like your lab. Well, I'm ho hopefully you know what you're doing. It's the <laughs> Yeah, there's, there's lots of risk assessments, don't worry. Lots of risk assessments, lots of laser safety goggles. Oh. Yeah, lots of shields, all interlocked. Yeah. 
we're, we're very well behaved oh you're good then yeah it's yeah <laughs> you, you see that's the thing when people really know what they're doing with lasers they got it sorted yeah <laughs> it's the people that well, just get one to try something no we have to be really careful because they're all quite high power so um i always say that show a video of an exploding eyeball because if you put one of our lasers on your eye you wouldn't have an eye left yep. so it's quite high power which is why you have to be quite careful and make sure you've got the safety in place Definitely. yeah oh uh, yeah no i know <laughs> i know i know <laughs> But I, I find it amazing, like you say, that you're you're not only that you can. It's fascinating enough that you can fabricate these nanoscale wires mm-hmm. and actually use them and actually measure them. I mean, this is yeah, it's really fun because also when you look at the materials, how they're grown, they're grown atom by atom. Yeah. And you can see that in a transmission electron microscope. And recently at Manchester, they've had a new system, which we're calling P-name, which means that you can dope, so replace those atoms with a different atom on similar length scales. So 20 nanometer accuracy, that's tiny. So we really can like fabricate these materials now, atom by atom, change those atoms if you want, and then start to measure them on slightly not atomic scale yet. That's not my group, but there are groups out there that Mm. can do that. Um, But yeah, nanometer length scales. And this is really what you need for nanotechnology. Yeah, like I say, I mean, I used to use atomic layer deposition, so we were growing them. Uh, atomic layer by atomic layer but i was making bigger devices you know <laughs> i was yeah. making them bigger than that it's just it's just yeah. amazing and the fact that we can use them that we can actually you know if you're making wires it's because you've got a circuit we're actually putting mm-hmm. these into circuits it's just amazing yeah it is super cool yeah the atomic deposition has always fascinated me because it's basically lego but with atoms it's like yeah yeah amazing it's great <laughs> it's cool it's just really slow for what i was doing uh, <laughs> <laughs> depends how thick you need the film in the end of the day but you can really concentrate it's, it's great uh, <laughs> yeah no I, I it's um i just i don't know I, it's just really interesting and like I say it's interesting for me that you'd think i think most people outside of what we do would sort of say oh we do the same thing um, we really don't. I mean, we have such <laughs> different knowledge, but, you know. But it, put us together, that's how it goes. Yeah. Well, fingers crossed, as we were saying. Yeah, yeah, fingers crossed. So. <laughs> There'll be something there. And always a good opportunity to visit Manchester as well. It's, of course. Uh, <laughs> ah, my hometown, my home city. It's, uh, how long have you been in Manchester? Have you been there a while? Uh, not that long. Time has flown. I, I think I arrived in 2018, so that's got to be two and a bit years now. But it doesn't feel that long because we, we moved to Chester, North Wales, quite early on. So I'm still learning all the haunts of Manchester. So Deansgate was where I initially like landed. Yep. And oh, I love Deansgate. It's one of my favourite areas of Manchester. But I'm still kind of learning the little places, you know, the best comedy clubs to go to, 
um, things like that. But I'm I'm loving Manchester. It feels very like home because uh, we were saying that um, earlier that I was originally from Wolverhampton or Birmingham way. So it's kind of a very similar vibe to where I grew up. Really so, is. Yeah, I feel quite at home. So I'm loving it so far. <laughs> oh, that's cool. I think, as I guess, because I think I've, unless I didn't realise, unless I was oblivious, which is always possible, but I guess that's how long I've known you then, because I've always known you've been in Manchester. It's Yeah, <laughs> it must have been how long we've known each other, yeah, since I've come back. Yeah, seems like longer, but yeah, I guess so. Um, it does seem like longer, but yeah, it must have been. You know, I probably that, didn't even go into Sicil then. So I, I was in Oxford, yeah, before before. So I had one year in Germany, and then um, was in Oxford beforehand. But, so yeah. there's probably some crossover as well. But uh, there must have been, yeah, there must have been. I was living in the condensed matter physics building, the Clarendon yep. building, quite a lot. Um, yeah, I was at Jesus College. So, but we we must have like seen each other around, but not realised at the time. Yeah, I think I started looking at sort of diversity in STEM on a sort of more wider basis, really with, and, and people here have heard me talk about tigers a million times, but uh, with mm-hmm. with the tigers, and um, not that I didn't have interest in diversity on a wider scale, but just because it's so easy to get involved in sort of campaigning for the stuff that you know about so in my case lgbti plus uh mm-hmm. people in stem and it was with tigers that i really started to sort of expand out and make more contacts and learn people who were fighting for race equality and disability yeah. and um and it's been really great to sort of learn a lot more how long have you been i mean have you been campaigning or actively looking at sort of improving equity for a long time or is it fairly um, recent yeah i would say that it's I say would say that my journey has changed. So definitely similar experience that like joining Tigers and STEM really opened my eyes to all types of equity, diversity and inclusion. Um, Because before that, I was quite uh, passionate about campaigning for women in physics and also um, accessibility. But I would say that I was less educated on accessibility. back then so even when at Exeter in Oxford it was very much you know actively engaging in women in physics outreach mm. going into schools um, you know talking about you know picking physics etc and at Oxford I helped out with the conference for undergraduate women in physics uh, quite a few times um, oh. and recently went back on a panel which was really nice to kind of be helping out on the committee and then actually go back and talk about it as a panel member so that was really nice so that type of work has been on my radar for a while and That's also cool. yeah I'd say also I uh, thought I wanted to go into teaching at one point and was quite passionate about different teaching methods because being hard of hearing and deaf uh, trying to think about how I would adapt STEM teaching to make events more accessible. And that's when I started to really get educated more, not just about, you know, my own hard of hearing experience, but, you know, other types of access needs and issues and barriers in STEM for disabled researchers. And then it really came to a forefront when I joined Tigers in STEM, because that's when I think I started learning about intersectionality and how important it is. Mm. 
and also you know not forgetting that I need to educate myself about race for example I knew nothing about that and so being like actually I need to educate myself on that also on the LGBT side uh, meeting you has helped I've learned lots of things <laughs> but yeah like kind of educating myself on issues arising you know barriers for LGBT researchers and how also there are some overlap between all these different groups so I would say that Tigers in STEM was definitely where I was like okay I'm going to start educating myself more and have it kind of also gave me the confidence to campaign more for issues that I'm passionate about um so I would say that kind of spurred me on to be like need to campaign for these things and gave me that confidence no absolutely and, and meeting other um people that are campaigning and um and what what i like is good activism you know there's always you'll hear a lot of people who complain about things but they're not necessarily going about things in the right yeah. way um but when you start meeting other activists who are actively actually trying to improve things and be constructive and it's like this is wrong but here's a solution or here's a thought and mm-hmm. it's just a very different way of doing it i know um i mean i i really started thinking about it with the when i first attended the lgbt seminar and i realized that there was issues with lgbti plus inclusion in stem mm-hmm. which i didn't i only knew my story i didn't realize the wider uh the wider issue and then so that sort of helped me and I met other people and you 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 see more what's going on and then uh, and then with tigers that sort of expanded it even further and it's yeah because you don't always realize what the issues are I mean I think if you particularly if you're slightly older further on in your career you're probably used to just expecting things to suck yeah (laughs) um you know um I, I i was on a panel the other day and and there was a woman who said oh, it was great because i was finally treated as one of the lads and i'm thinking no you shouldn't have to change who you are and you know try and fit in you should be yourself yeah but i think again like i knew that it's up for lgbti plus people but i didn't think there was anything i could do about it and i was it similar with you and I mean, you obviously were active in the women in physics, but, uh, you know, as someone that is deaf, was that, you know, did you think that you could change things? Um, No, but I think it's also um, a bit complicated because having to associate yourself as disabled is quite a personal thing anyway. So I didn't necessarily, you know, think of myself as disabled um, I still don't because I'm kind of like, you know, I, I'm not disabled. I don't have a problem. I can, can do things, etc. And this is where you come to the medical model and the social model. So um, the medical model says that like you are the problem and you need to be fixed. So your disability is a problem and we're always going to treat it and solve it. And you need specific individual adjustments um but then the social model is actually it's society and the environment that disables me not my disability and Mm. 
that is quite a difference. So it's like, if we change the environment to be more accessible, then I'm not disabled anymore. Like, and I think, so in terms of actually, you know, getting the confidence and thinking about that, I had to deal with that myself about coming to terms with those two ideas and realizing that, you know, I was very much in the social model that, you know, I don't feel disabled. I think it's an access need issue that if we change environments to be inclusive for everyone, then, you know, I'm not disabled anymore. And that was definitely how I felt. Um, but then having to accept that to get some of those access needs, you still have to register as disabled in, in Manchester and in different universities. It's not just Manchester. So that, you know, society is a little bit behind on that. So in order to actually get my access needs and access requirements, I had to kind of identify as disabled. But in terms of mm. thinking about that journey, it actually made me go, okay, I need to now uh, raise awareness of these two models and the social model and also recognizing these different lived experiences. So that was kind of my approach to get there. Somebody else with a different disability might have a different lived experience. And that's really, really important. And that's the nothing about us without us, which I think I always say. Um, and that goes for everybody with, you know, who's in a minority group or protected characteristic. I would even say everybody full stop that, you know, we all have these different lived experiences mm -hmm. and we should listen to that. So I think, you know, it was kind of a journey for me to think about that in my head, how I felt about it. Um, also owning that I'm hard of hearing. So or when I was at undergrad, I was very much trying to hide it. It is a hidden disability. You probably wouldn't realize unless I told you because of a lot of lip reading. Um, there's no telltale signs. Um, you know, if, if I go slow with my speech, you wouldn't notice anything. So it is a hidden disability. So it was easy for me at undergrad to kind of be in denial um, feel shame um, try and hide it and then having that kind of wake-up call in PhD and very much now as a lecturer and saying actually I'm going to be proud of this yes I am deaf or hard of hearing uh, but actually we need to talk about accessibility and talk about these experiences and make change so I definitely say it was it was quite a a long journey. <laughs> Don't know if that's answered your question, but, but... no. And I and in in some ways, it's interesting because completely different lives and completely different things going on. But I spent most of my time in denial and hiding, and I had to come to terms with myself. And um, so I understand that completely, actually. And it's interesting to hear that about something so different. And yeah, it's the exact same journey. And this is why it is important that we do work intersectionally and try and work together and try and figure these things out. Yeah. Because there are a lot of similar paths. There's a similar root causes. It's society is wrong. It's that lack of role models. It's that lack of yeah. being welcome. It's, yeah, I know. Because there's, there's a lot of things that we do 
that do that do that we don't necessarily need to i don't know we're just going about it wrong i see a lot of presentations and people have text which is really hard to read it's really small the yeah. colors aren't right mm-hmm. um so now i try and have less data on a graph and i try and make the colors stronger but i didn't realize that that was something that would help people who maybe were visually impaired uh, yeah. i didn't know that until i started looking into it it's not like mm-hmm. we're teaching people this it's not like we're talking about this uh, we're only just starting to see people think about like you know well do we have transcription does it need to be live transcription or bsl um yeah whatever it is has have we start so i say on one side i think i feel like we're starting to look at these things more over the last few years you might disagree yeah. <laughs> um I think there is more awareness now. I think so. I actually think that COVID has helped raise some awareness. So especially with working from home and remote working, that type of thing is things disabled researchers need and have been campaigning for for a long time, for example. Um, And I think it's starting to raise awareness that actually, while it will benefit disabled researchers who need flexible working, it also benefits everyone. You know, if you do need to take time out because you don't have childcare, flexible working hours, for example, will really help with that too. So a lot of these little things are benefiting everyone. And that's always what I say about accessibility and other things that I campaign for as well, that like women in physics as well. Um, lots of stuff that we make changes um, is helpful for everybody. I think as well, um, pronouns are a great example because it's inclusive of LGBTQ plus, right? But also, I mean, I don't see a reason that it doesn't benefit everybody. As soon as you come on a screen, you're like, okay, I know exactly what to use. So it's these changes shouldn't, there's no, I can't see a disadvantage to them basically because they benefit everybody. Um, So I would say that we are starting to make progress but we still got a long way to go so examples with the flexible working um it might be okay to take that time for childcare, but still not okay to take hospital appointments so there is ways to go um i also think that the online learning has highlighted a lot of the things that you just said about the text having to be a certain size do we need subtitles or not should we have BSL interpretation? So I think those questions and those discussions are starting to happen, but they're still facing resistance. And from my own experience, um, I felt like I had to personally fight quite a lot to get subtitles used. Um, and definitely I've tried to champion that within my own university, making sure on my own lectures, you know, actually abide by the accessibility standards that I'm promoting so definitely trying to say okay let's do this but I don't think that once you address these issues and say look this is great it benefits everyone it's a small change most people are receptive to that idea so I think I think we are on an upwards trend and can make change but we still need to keep fighting for it um and definitely still talk 
to those people with those lived experiences. And that's a message that I think we still need to try um, and get out. Um, on the accessibility side, there is sometimes a risk of, um, you know, people without that lived experience making decisions on your behalf. So, you know, um, decisions associated with cost and what's considered the best practice in you know the field but actually isn't used and one example of that is um the hearing loops now are mm -hmm. infrared technology so they used to be telecoil loops with a hearing aid and now they're infrared and you've probably seen them if you've gone to a theater um because you have to wear something and i always say that you look a bit like iron man because it's like this big and you wear it and it's on your chest and you have to have it over your ears. Now, um, I don't like wearing that as a personally as a lecturer because I go into a class and the students are immediately like, why are you wearing that? That looks hilarious. And then you have to own and say, actually, I'm deaf, um, which I don't mind doing because they know that anyway, because they use sign language in lectures. But for, that's not necessarily a nice situation to put people in and you have to give people that choice to use. Hmm. Also, um, a lot of disabled students don't use that technology for similar reasons that you don't want to sit there with something that's basically a badge saying I'm deaf. Hmm. So I think there is a, more work to happen, um, more work that needs to happen um, in terms of raising that awareness of the importance of lived experiences and that nothing about us without us so that we get solutions that actually work for the people that need them. And I would say that that is a trend across all aspects of equality, diversity and inclusion, that we're starting to have these discussions, but we still need to focus on experiences lived experiences nothing about us without us and how we get solutions that work um, yeah yeah <laughs> no 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 I didn't know but <laughs> no it's it's good and again there's a lot of similarities that I'm seeing you know yeah. it's, it's interesting because I was I was actually going to follow up and say you know has I, I can see that in some ways so COVID has been bad for many people in many ways, but there's also been advantages. For instance, people with chronic illnesses can't necessarily leave the house to go to events, but if they're online, they can. Yeah. Um, and, and also, you know, people from, I know that I've put on events and people have been able to come from countries. I've had people uh, talk to me at events who live in countries where it's illegal, illegal to be gay, uh, and never met any, never heard any LGBTI plus people speak, and yet they could do that because it was online. And so yeah. you've got these amazing improvements. And I, I miss in-person events. Mm -hmm. um, as someone that does suffer from uh, chronic fatigue as well, though, it's nice to not be traveling as much because yeah. it, that makes it easier. So it sort of swings and roundabouts. Mm -hmm. It's interesting earlier you were talking about um, BSL because so with and maybe this is a very specific thing. So people in general aren't so <laughs> interested, but I am. Uh, with the I ran the LGBT seminar recently, and because we knew that it was international, um, but we wanted something. So it was: do we get live transcription or do we get signing? Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. And because uh, live transcription in English is language dependent, it's English, but BSL is British Sign Language, it's language dependent. So which one do we use? And so we actually went with the live transcription um, as I feel, I feel that there's probably, I don't know, more people speak English. I, 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 you know, it's, I, I don't know. I didn't know. It was a back and forth and we were asking people and we, mm. we went with live transcription. I wonder if you've got any thoughts on that. Yeah. <laughs> you don't have to um... have. <laughs> Yes, I do. <laughs> Surprise, right? Um, so actually, I would say that you should have both, if possible, mm. at all times. Um, and I know that um, often there's a cost implication for that. And that, I think, is a different issue of who should be funding those costs as well. So I would really, I'm advocating for, you know, if universities hold events, that they should cover the costs of both live transcription yeah. and BSL. Um, similarly, conferences, I think, you know, you charge conference registration fees, there should be a pot of money that is set aside for access needs. Um, but I appreciate if you're doing, you know, um, events that is ran mainly by volunteers, you might not have that funding available. So you have to do the best that you can. Um, so the reason I always say both is that BSL is a different language to English. So it doesn't follow um, English grammar at all. It has its own grammar associated with it. And often users of BSL, that would be deaf users with a capital D. So whose first language is BSL? Mm -hmm. So you have to assume that they might not actually know English. So although, you know, some of the signs are similar, it's uh, equivalent to a French person trying to understand an English lecture without any English knowledge. So um, that's why I say both interpretations. Um, often as well, um, there's a lag sometimes with live transcription. So BSL is often faster, so you mm. can keep up to date a lot more. Um, but live transcription is also important. And I'm quite vocal about the difference between having a captioner, so someone that sat there typing live um, to the closed captions that you might have on Zoom or Teams. Um, so live transcription is also really important because um, often, you know, closed captions, I'm sure we've all had those moments where we're kind of laughing at the subtitles when they've got something wrong especially with technical vocab mm. but if you are trying to listen to a meeting and you're relying on those subtitles you just can't engage in that meeting and also you're probably second guessing the subtitles so I do this a lot I use subtitles wherever I can um, especially in big meetings where I can't lip read and often I'm like, oh, it's trying to say the element molybdenum. It said molly, big, dom, or something like that. And you have to then guess, and it's extra workload uh, for your brain. So you're working overtime, if you like. Similar to the zoomitis that everybody was talking about. That's, mm -hmm. that's how you would feel. Um, so live transcriptions are much better than closed captioning. And I would say that that should always be included definitely and bsl if possible there should be hopefully enough funds to have both because you're engaging both users 
Um, also, if you're hosting events, don't be afraid to ask people what their access needs are um, so that you can yeah. plan for that. Yeah. So it might be that you, if it's not an event for the whole general public, it might be that you don't actually have any users that need to use BSL and you're not opening it out to the public. So you don't need to worry about that. And you can then only just have live transcription. Um, if it's for the public, then you have to assume that you're going to have a broad range of access needs. But if you are dealing with that, uh, just ask people. And I'm pretty sure they will tell you. Uh, so, yeah. Hopefully so. Yeah, I mean, we did, we, we, we did have that where we we also asked as well because everyone Brilliant. had to register. So, um, and like I say, we, it's it's difficult. It's, it's a really, it's difficult to know. And the one thing, uh, another consideration was that, um, and this is something that I've had a number of conversations about recently, mm. that there's a lot of scientific terminology which doesn't have a BSL Science. Yeah. Yes, definitely. And this is something that I realized very recently because my hearing um, started to get worse. And when I was in Germany, I had to have quite a big operation to recover the hearing and not lose it completely. Um, so it was a kind of wake up call for me to actually start learning BSL. So I didn't have the opportunity as a child. Um, mm for several reasons, part, partly just medical doctors, you know, diagnosis issues. Um, and also it was expensive. Um, couldn't afford it as an undergrad, couldn't afford it as a PhD student. Now I'm in a position where I can afford to take lessons. So that's great. Um, and really have started to find it much easier, especially for situations like the lab, also, face masks are an absolute nightmare for me. Um, so I can't communicate now with face masks. Lip reading's out. Yeah. Um, and that's where sign language is starting to kind of replace that. I would say that face masks are still tricky for sign language because there's a lot of facial expressions and mm. body language and communication. Um, but there are situations that start to become more difficult where I can't use lip reading anymore. And that's where sign language is really helping but I noticed when I was learning that if I did want to use it in the lab there wasn't that many signs and immediately was like there wasn't a sign for terahertz radiation so I was like oh I can never talk about my research what am I going to do and then I found um, the Scottish Sensory Centre app which is fantastic Um, I recommend everybody download it it's from the Play Store you can just type BSL education and that is um, videos and definitions in BSL of signs that are related to science and technical vocab. So physics. Is that, is that the Glasgow group? Yeah, the Glasgow group. Yeah, they're really good. And a lot of the signs that I was doing at Twitter come from that app. Um, other groups as well. So from my deaf centre as well, starting to learn different terms. But it's quite difficult because there's different regional signs. Mm. Um, numbers are completely different all over. So when I was a child, I learned basic BSL at school. So very level one numbers, colors, um, and obviously learned Brummie signs, Birmingham signs, completely different to Manchester signs and Exeter and Bristol. So for the science vocab, 
we need a glossary or a dictionary that we can all start to learn these signs and they're consistent across the UK. And it's important for ensuring that, you know, deaf students want to take STEM and stay in STEM. So. Yeah. Um, I was, I was talking about the Glasgow group in a meeting because I saw them do a talk end of last year um, on this very topic um which is the only reason i know <laughs> i just um yeah. and the the royal society are looking at funding some um more terminology basically and i said well don't start from scratch there's a group already working on this mm-hmm. uh and so it's really great that actually what we're seeing is that there's a few groups that are looking at doing this and so if we can hook them up yeah so that they're not all developing their own terminology Definitely. and even better if we can also Uh, in some way try and sort of collate that with what's going on in America and other countries so that, again, um, we're not sort of, you know, when we're naming elements, we're trying to do that globally now. We don't want to do them in each language. We Mm -hmm. want to try and do it globally. So let's do that with terminology in in this as well. But, yeah, yeah, it's, 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 like I say, I had a, a conversation about it just last week and it was something that I happened to have seen a talk about four months ago, five months yeah. ago. Before that, I didn't consider it. I, it, I didn't realise. And I should have done because I just used the uh, the example of different languages. Mm. Um, my ex-girlfriend is Polish and she worked with other microbiologists who were Polish. And they'd be talking away and then use and then English words, English scientific words, yeah. um, because it's you know trying to make these words global so I should have thought about it but it just I never put two and two together I think it'd be really exciting to keep putting that vocab in the BSL and like I am really my dream is that you know there will be lecturers who are lecturing purely in BSL in engineering so that's what I hope to do because I'm learning for myself but also it would be great to be able to do a lecture on electronic materials purely in BSL so that people can access it as well. And that's what I think we need. I do. I, and I'll be honest, I love, cause you, you do things on Twitter where you um, show different words, show how to do different words. And I'd actually learned a few of them and then I, I remember them for six months and then they slip out of my mind. Um, yeah. I'm terrible. And I've, I've it's one of those things that you know i'm not great with languages and and i see this as another language and it's same with music i've got my guitar behind me and i struggle it's just trying to remember so we we all have brains that work in different ways but it doesn't mean that we can't try and uh, yeah yeah i think really interesting actually because i started using some of the engineering signs from the app in in actual lectures this term remotely and it was really nice to see it actually reinforce some of the concepts because some of the signs literally look like what you're trying to explain. And that is one of the beauties of BSL, how visual it is. Yeah, um, yeah. So I, I guess I can give an example, but um, like conductor is yeah. like the current flowing over a line. <laughs> That's a wire. So you're like, it makes sense logically and it was another way of teaching students. So even though uh, there was non-deaf students in the class, they still found it useful and 
you know, as reinforcing as a teaching element as well. So that was a nice surprise and another example of how, you know, these access needs can benefit everybody in a surprising way sometimes. Yeah. Well, this, yeah, this is it. And it's always, it's never one group that benefit from things. There's always more, like you say, um, you know, and I'm thinking of, um, like recently some journals have started allowing you to change names. Um, and that's really great for trans people, but it's also good for people who are, you know, for some reason or other need to change their name for security reasons or because they want to because of marriage or stuff like that. Mm. It's not just one group that benefits. There's more. There's more. Um, yeah. It's, I mean, if we had single stall bathrooms, all of them could be more accessible. All of them. Yeah. At the moment, you have to have special provisions on what every other floor or something, and it's like, well, why are we doing this? And now, uh, I was thinking about this this morning because with COVID, it, you know, we've got this big old bathroom, loads of stores, but you can only have one person in the entire space. Well, if they were single use, yeah, loads of these examples, definitely. Yeah. So if we can. Benefits yeah. everyone. <laughs> yes, definitely. Keep campaigning. That's that's the message. So yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So been, I, um, sorry, there's been a really good uh, phrase which uh, Hamid said to me the other day. We were talking about Hamid, who's yes, I met he's, him last week. Yeah, he's the chair of the National Association for Disabled Staff Networks, um, and he's at Manchester, and he's set up our disabled staff network there. So he's super awesome and really hot on accessibility. And he said a phrase yet that um, really struck with me, which is not disabled yet. And kind of trying to explain accessibility in that terms that, you know, who knows, you might lose your hearing, um, you know, when you're older, yeah. that all of these things will benefit you, if not right now, could be at some point and getting people to think about what what if you were in the situation yeah. what would you like and that's always struck with me this kind of benefiting more people than you imagine and also like trying to understand that lived experience as well than I think about us without us yeah absolutely you, you just don't know what people are going through all those that like you say those hidden disabilities that people like myself who are lgbt and not out and the you know yeah. different um people from mixed backgrounds and things like that there's so many things that you just don't know mm -hmm. you help more people than you realize often there's i don't know if you watch um the cartoon adventure time but they had a oh. they did a, a special recently and they had something really similar that you know one person was they were talking about, you know, one person was the outcast and because they had a crack and and then once they're like, actually, this is a good thing. Everyone's like, oh, so have I, so have I, so have I. <laughs> um, it's great that there's cartoons that can sometimes just sort of demonstrate these so simply, but yeah, yeah you, you have no idea. And this idea that you just said, uh, not disabled yet is, is really, yeah, you have yeah. no idea, you know, I'm getting older. Yeah. It kind of struck with me that it was like, oh, that's an interesting way of framing it. Yeah, it really yeah. is. It really is. 
Oh, and what a lovely individual as well. Like I say, it's the first time I've met him last week. So he's he's awesome. So loads of pearls of wisdom. I've learned loads from him. So. I'll definitely be uh, for those listening. I'll definitely be trying to uh, get him in for a, a later yeah, please, please. <laughs> interview. He, he will be very interesting. I think to to yeah. talk to definitely. Well, with that, is there anything, I mean, we covered quite a lot and I've kept you much longer than I thought I was going to, but is there anything that you feel like we should, that you should mention, that you should highlight, or do you think we've covered a lot of ground? I think we've covered quite a lot of ground. <laughs> so, yeah, just that, I guess I was like, for all your listeners maybe, um, but like if they did want to ask any questions, then they can feel free to email me. Um yeah, I'm not sure I'll always have the answers, but if they did just want to chat about any of the topics we've discussed and my love of terahertz even, then they can, <laughs> can just uh, email anytime. That's amazing. Well, what I'll do is I will get the details that you want to share and put them in the links, whether it's the podcast or YouTube, they will be below. So yeah. um, just make sure it's the ones you want to share. And uh <laughs> Yeah, and with that, <laughs> thank you so much for the chat. Thank I could you for talk for hours, me. obviously, but uh, uh, it's been really, really fun. So thanks, I appreciate it. Thank you. So that's uh, Jesse. It's uh, it was an absolute pleasure. As usual with these chats, I could have gone on forever. If I'm perfectly honest. Uh, it was really nice to catch up, especially as I've not actually been able to meet in person for a long time with a lot of these people. Uh, but yeah, hopefully that was an interesting overview of the work that uh, she's doing and the work that she's into. And uh, just, yeah, learn a little bit about uh, Jessie. And I know I actually learned a few things uh, today as well. So uh, yeah, amazing. Uh, I'll put the links below uh, on the YouTube video for Jessie's socials. Um, and in the podcast they'll be in the description hopefully and with that yeah you know like subscribe uh, tell your friends that we're here and with that i'll see you again soon Uh, until next time bye